Hi, I'm Andrew Pearce. It's Tuesday, December the 28th, and welcome to a special festive edition of The Andrew Pearce Show. Today, we've handpicked a selection of the best royal stories from the year. Enjoy. Today, Buckingham Palace announced the sad news that Prince Philip had died at the age of 99. Duke of Edinburgh, who'd been hospitalised recently, had served the royal family for more than seven decades. The palace said in a statement, it's with deep sorrow that Her Majesty the Queen announces the death of her beloved husband, His Royal Highness the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. His Royal Highness passed away peacefully this morning at Windsor Castle. The royal family joined with people around the world mourning his loss. I'm joined now by the Daily Mail's Robert Hardman. Robert, so sad, inevitable, but very sad. For the Queen, it's not just a significant member of the royal family that's died it's her husband of 73 years and the head of her own family. Absolutely, Andrew. I, I think, you know, I, all of us will feel um, our own sort of sadness, really, at the loss of, a, uh, of someone who has been part of our lives. I mean, you've got to be of a very considerable age not to have seen the Duke at the heart of national and international life. Um, but for the Queen herself, this is this is absolutely uh, you know this is the end of the longest royal marriage in history. This is the passing of the man who swore to be her liege man of life and limb, and the man who she called her strength and stay. And I think that will be you know that'll be his epitaph. He was the strength and stay of the longest lived Queen in British history. Do you think, just finally, Robert, um, we've got a wonderful tribute from you. Um, do you think we will see less of the Queen now, Robert? Um, we always think about Queen Victoria, who disappeared from public life for, for many years after the death of her beloved Prince Albert. Will we see less of the Queen? Will Prince Charles now take on more, even more duties, do you think? I, I think those are probably discussions for another day. I think everyone's just sort of adjusting to this, even though, you know, at the age of 99, he's had a very full and uh, long life. I, I still think this will have come something of a, of a shock. Uh, I, knowing uh, the way that the Queen has operated all these years through thick and thin, I certainly would not expect her to emulate her great-great-grandmother. I think uh, she is like the Duke himself. She's wedded to her duty and that is not going to change. That's Robert Hardman. Do read him in the mail on Saturday's Daily Mail because there will be a very, very long and detailed piece about the life and times of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. We now play a special audio tribute where the mail's Robert Hardman indeed looks back on Prince Philip's extraordinary life from his turbulent childhood to his tireless dedication to his public duties. In the summer of 2017, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, finally retired from official duties as he took the salute from the Royal Marines. A fitting tribute to a man who had himself served in the Royal Navy with distinction. Now, as the world celebrates his years of dedication to Queen and country, we look back on an extraordinary life. I feel it. I feel it. Take thee, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. Take thee, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. To my wedded wife. To my wedded wife. To have and to hold. To have and to hold. To love and to cherish. To love and to cherish. Till death us do part. Till death us do part. Philip's wedding to Princess Elizabeth in 1947 launched the 26-year-old naval lieutenant 
into the heart of the British establishment. It was a dramatic change from his turbulent early life. He was born Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark on the island of Corfu. But while still a baby, his family were forced into exile by a military coup. After his parents separated, he was sent away to school in Britain, where he excelled, before joining the Royal Navy at the outbreak of the Second World War. He earned a reputation as a brave and highly capable young officer. Come the end of the war, romance with Princess Elizabeth led to marriage. But after the king's death and Elizabeth's accession to the throne, the duke's career had to be put aside. And from that moment, he dedicated his life to royal duty, I to the young queen, and to their family. And so began one of the greatest partnerships in British royal history. someone who doesn't take easily to compliments, but he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family, and this and many other countries, owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim, or we shall ever know. He makes me laugh, and he's also someone who will tell me something that maybe I don't want to hear, and I'm glad because um, the last thing I want is lots of, you know, people telling me, what, um, what I want to hear, you know, I'd much rather hear what the reality of it is. You admire his sort of bluntness? Yeah, well, yeah. His was a life of action. He inspired millions of young people through his Duke of Edinburgh's award. He embraced science and was a pioneering champion of the environment. Conservation isn't only to do with preserving bushes and, and animals. At the end of the whole of this cycle are people. Mm. If you threaten the life on a planet, you threaten all life on the planet. It's only a matter of time before it affects us seriously. I'm not a rebel, no, I wouldn't call that. Innovator, perhaps. <laughs> as a husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, and the longest-serving royal consort in history, Prince Philip devoted more than seven decades to the Queen and the country he loved. What would you like to be your lasting legacy? Would you go through life trying to make a legacy? <laughs> I mean, life's going to go on after me. If I can make life marginally more, tolerable for people who come afterwards or even at the time, I'd be delighted. I mean, I didn't particularly want to create a legacy. I'd rather other people decided what, what legacy I'd left. Tributes for the Prince poured in from all around the world. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said this outside Number 10 Downing Street. Prince Philip earned the affection of generations here in the United Kingdom, across the Commonwealth and around the world. He was the longest serving consort in history, one of the last surviving people in this country to have served in the Second World War, 
And from that conflict, he took an ethic of service that he applied throughout the unprecedented changes of the post-war era. Like the expert carriage driver that he was, he helped to steer the royal family and the monarchy so that it remains an institution indisputably vital to the balance and happiness of our national life. The leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, also paid tribute saying, the United Kingdom has lost an extraordinary public servant in Prince Philip. However, he'll be remembered most of all for his extraordinary commitment and devotion to the Queen. For more than seven decades, he's been at her side. Their marriage has been a symbol of strength, stability and hope, even as the world around them changed, and most recently, during the pandemic. Prince William and his brother Harry have both condemned the BBC in very strong and passionate words for the deception of their mother, Princess Diana. Prince William says the BBC's failures over that landmark panorama programme had added to Princess Diana's fear, paranoia and isolation. Harry effectively said the panorama programme contributed to her death in that Paris underpass in 1997. They're speaking, of course, after the publication of Lord Dyson's devastating report into the way Martin Bashir acquired that BBC panorama scoop and also the way the BBC covered it up afterwards. I'm joined now by Professor Tim Luckhurst. He's the principal of South College Durham and for many years was a very senior executive at the BBC. Professor Luckhurst, is jaw-dropping too much of a cliché, but frankly, what other expression can we use for the scale of the deception and the uh, pathetic attempt to cover it up afterwards? I think this is a very dark day for the BBC. I should be clear that I think the BBC is a valuable British institution. It's a very valuable cultural export. But it's valuable because it has a global reputation for accuracy and honesty. And the problem with Lord Dyson's compelling and damning report is that it suggests quite emphatically that on this occasion, in the way that Martin Bashir sought to obtain the interview with Princess Diana and the way in which the BBC failed to expose Mr Bashir's deception, the BBC fell very far below those standards of accuracy and honesty. That's a colossal problem for the BBC and one which it cannot shy away from. The extent of the failure is to me illustrated perhaps most dramatically by the letter that Tony Hall, subsequently the Director General, then the Director of News, wrote to Martin Bashir shortly after the programme. It said, you should be very proud of your scoop. It was the interview of the decade, if not our generation. And he went on to say, you've changed the way we report the monarchy. Yours, thank you, sorry, thank you, Tony. Now, really, that sums up the complacency. The BBC was so pleased to have this interview, so delighted with the impact it made domestically and internationally, that it simply overlooked the appalling way in which Martin Bashir had deceived and acted deviously in order to obtain an interview with Princess Diana in the first place. And yet they knew uh, within a year that Bashir had um, uh, faked bank statements to which were shown to the princess to try to convince her that people around her were being paid by newspapers to sell stories about her. And yet Tony Hall, he left the BBC, he became chief executive of the Royal Opera House, he came back as director general, he conducted an inquiry 
which didn't at any time talk to Lord Spencer, Princess Diana's brother, who'd made the introduction of Bashir to his sister, even though uh, Spencer had kept contemporaneous notes of all his conversations with Bashir. Was that a deliberate attempt by the BBC, as Prince William said, to look the other way? No, it wasn't, and Lord Dyson is quite clear about this. What Lord Dyson explains, and explains in meticulous detail, is that it did not occur to the BBC's senior executives that the letter might have been used not to persuade Princess Diana herself to take part in the interview, but to persuade Earl Spencer to give Martin Bashir access to his sister. They were looking at the wrong thing. They thought that it was possible that Bashir had forged the documents in order to persuade Princess Diana. But of course, Princess Diana wrote to the BBC in her own handwriting and it is definitely an authentic letter to make it clear that she didn't feel that Bashir had misled her. That wasn't what had happened. What he'd done was to very cleverly play her brother in order to use him, the acknowledged gatekeeper, to Princess Diana to gain access to Princess Diana. It's not an excuse and it doesn't defend the BBC and Lord Dyson makes that clear. But it is why at the beginning Beyond the programme team who'd actually commissioned Martin Bashir, the senior executives were looking in the wrong direction. Of course, subsequently, great British national newspapers, notably the Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday and the Sunday Times, made the accusation which should have drawn their attention directly to what had actually happened. Watchdog reporting by newspapers put the BBC under a great deal of pressure. It astonishes me to this day that the BBC's senior executives didn't look at that reporting and take it seriously. What they did instead was at that point to try to cover up the evidence of error. And often we think about the Watergate. I wrote about this for the Mail yesterday. People have already forgotten the names of the five people who broke into the to the Democrat HQ in Washington. It was the cover up which caused the scandal and brought down President Nixon. In some senses, Professor Luckhurst, is the cover up by um, the man who then went on to become the director general of the BBC and who's now got a very nice job as chairman of the National Gallery. Is the cover up almost as bad as the way Bashir duped the princess and her brother? I think that this is about much more than one now utterly disgraced former reporter. It's about the way in which the BBC polices itself. And this has real importance for the future. Tim Davey, the current director general, says this happened 25 years ago. We now have better processes and procedures. We need to see the most emphatic evidence that that is really true. And I have serious doubts because for the best part of quarter of a century, as you accurately say, Andrew, the BBC has sought not to investigate what went wrong. Indeed, at one point, it was determined to silence the whistleblower who told them that it might have done something wrong. The BBC was determined to protect its reputation. Now, I think part of the problem is the way that the BBC is managed. It is too much like the civil service. There are too many layers of management, and we have the classic problem that when everyone is responsible, no one is responsible. No one is held to account. I think the BBC needs dramatically simplified management. It needs to make editors directly responsible for the content that they broadcast or publish and hold them to account when they fail. Instead, it has these quadruple, sometimes quadruple levels of management 
layers of bureaucracy which allow people to just pretend it wasn't my fault. Editors should be held to account and when they get it wrong they should be sacked. That's the way it works in newspapers and I do think that one of the compelling truths about this awful scandal is that newspapers did through their editorial processes identify this truth before the BBC. The BBC should be alarmed about that. I was going to finally come on to that because, of course, newspapers had their own torrid period, um, was it a decade ago, when a number of them, a journalist, went to prison because they'd been illegally hacking people's phones. Uh, the phone hacking scandal, the darkest day in newspapers' history for sure. And the BBC took great, re- reported it extensively. Uh, and uh, one, I would ask you, Professor Luckhurst, should the police that got involved in phone hacking be looking at whether the law was broken here because it was seemed to me that anyone who um, had access to legitimate bank statement numbers so the bank accounts were clearly numbers that the princess and lord spencer recognized wasn't isn't there an element of criminal deception involved in this and if so shouldn't the police be involved well, it's a matter for a court to make that decision, but if there is prima facie evidence of criminality, and I think that there may well be some prima facie evidence, then it should be investigated, and if that evidence is sufficient to justify a prosecution, then individuals should be prosecuted. The law must be applied impartially, the law must be applied absolute with absolute clarity if there is evidence of criminality then of course there should be prosecutions that's a matter for the police to decide i hope they will look at it and i hope that they will act as they always should with complete and absolute impartiality and to investigate without fear or favor that's the appropriate outcome you compare it to hacking i was a opponent of the proposals made by Lord Leveson. I think state regulation of the press would have been a catastrophic mistake. I'm glad that it has never happened and I'm glad that British newspapers remain free to hold great British institutions like the BBC to account when they do wrong. That is a crucial element of our freedom. But that freedom comes with responsibility and when institutions misbehave they should be subject to the full majesty of the law without doubt. And what of Lord Hall? Lord Hall's reputation has not been enhanced by what has happened. It is clear that he is very sensitive about that. I understand why he is very sensitive. But if I were in the position in which Lord Hall now finds himself, I would certainly not be proud of my record. I can say no more than that. What he does next is a matter for him. That's Tim Luckhurst, Professor Tim Luckhurst, the principal of South College Durham, who for many years was a very senior executive at the BBC. Thanks for joining us. Harry and Meghan, they're back in their first major public appearance since they effectively walked away from the royal family this year. The Sussex were treated like royalty in New York City with a private site visit and a meeting with the US ambassador to the United Nations. I'm joined by Angela Levin, the royal biographer, and of course she's author of Harry, Conversations with the Prince. Well, Angela, the crowds turned out, the cameras were there. What did you make of their first, um, effectively, uh, official visit, trip? Call it what you will. I thought it was um, cringe-making. It's extraordinary because Harry and Meghan didn't like going on royal engagements, which is one of the reasons why they quitted, and now they're doing it. Harry said in, uh, when they were in South uh, Africa in November that he couldn't bear 
um, photographers and clicks. Every time he heard a click of the camera, he felt he was taken back to his mother's death. He couldn't bear it. There he was, smiling at the camera as they went with a personal photographer. They didn't risk any old person doing it. Here we have the hypocrisy. They're driving around in SUVs, which are huge, um, hugely uh, bad for the environment. Three of them are taking them around with blacked out windows. Everything they do is to tell us what we must do, but they don't want to do it themselves. But why on earth is the United States uh, pandering to all that? Surely the ambassador of the UN, uh, UN has got better things to do than to tell Harry and Meghan what's going on. In any case, they could have done this with a Zoom call. Um, why are they, um, is, is the mayor spending time doing it? They're not royals. They don't have any control about doing anything except the lecturing us. I find it just absolutely astonishing. And I suspect, Angela, this is probably going to be the first of many, don't you? Yes, I think, well, I have felt for a while now that they want to present themselves as a woke, modern um, royal family to give us all an alternative. I think they're very, very pleased to sort of bring what we know as our royal family down and they will continue to attack them and be aggressive towards them and unkind uh, and put themselves as an alternative. I can't see why they're doing that. They're, they're not there to actually represent um, the royal family in the UK. They're not there. They've got no power. They're not scientists. They're not virologists, but yet they feel that they have the right to present themselves as superheroes. Yeah, and of course they're pressing for more COVID vaccines to be presented uh, or to be distributed in uh, countries where the vaccine take-up is, is low. Do you think they were effectively having a dig at Britain? Because although we are going to give away 100 million vaccines, there has been some criticism in some quarters that we shouldn't be doing booster jabs in Britain, Angela, before we've distributed vaccines to uh, countries in Africa. Not a view I yeah. hold, by the way. No, nor me, but I think um, that's absolutely right. They're going to this one world observatory where they've talked before um, and they are going to discuss this. Well, they, they're, they're not informed enough to do that. We even had our prime minister listening to the scientists on actually the detail of vaccination. But here they go, speaking very carefully made up and very carefully dressed. It's a whole palaver. It's a real sort of acting isn't it it's like being in a film where they're going along and they're talking about what should really happen but the reality is they've got no idea about all these things i mean like a lot of us all of us um don't quite understand should we shouldn't we have another vaccine should we go out should we stay in should we wear masks you know it's it's querying the most intelligent of people not saying that that's me but um it's it's it is difficult to know how to manage it but they feel they've got the right to tell the world what should be done yeah and i wonder if they've been double jabbed and are going to have booster jabs angela of course we won't know that we won't know that because that would be an invasion of their privacy but it doesn't matter if they invade the royal family's privacy like the queen and prince charles that's that's fine it's just it mustn't happen to them and, and I'm just going to ask you just finally, there was that fabulous programme the other night, um, the tribute to Prince Philip by members of the royal family. Yes. Uh, I, 
I wonder what he's making all this from his um, uh, celestial position up there somewhere looking down. What do you think he makes of Harry and Meghan? Well, I think he would be absolutely furious and disappointed with them for their behaviour and for their disrespect to his beloved wife, the Queen. No doubt about it. Uh, And we still haven't seen a photograph of Lily Bet, have we? No, no, not at all. That I don't mind. If she wants to keep her quiet, that's fine to me. But what I do mind is them telling everybody else what to do. And actually, Harry's comment during that marvellous documentary was, oh, uh, the Queen, uh, his, his grandmother and his grandfather, they were an adorable couple. Well, adorable is a word you use for tiny children, isn't it? It's very patronising to use it to uh, Her Majesty the Queen. Um, I thought that was terrible. And he most felt sad because of her loss. Okay, so then he keeps on challenging her. He's doing a program with Oprah Winfrey while his grandfather is seriously ill in hospital and he knew he was going to die within the next few weeks. It's all nothing. It doesn't make up. But a lot of people obviously just take them for what they're doing, the superficial side of them. And I just... And and even when you've got UN... Um, representatives doing the same thing. I mean, it's absolutely, I can't understand why they can't see through the mask. Well, very interesting, Angela, as ever. That's Angela Levin. She's the royal biographer and author of the fascinating book, Harry, Conversations with the Prince. That's all we've got time for today. I'll be back with more festive highlights and the show will return in full on January the 4th. I'm Andrew Pearce. Have a good evening and good night. Good night.